Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I got swept away and he just caught me um, before I went over this series of falls. He grabbed my hand and uh, saved my life. Welcome to Terra Incognita, the adventure podcast. In this feature, we're speaking to George Monbiot. Uh, I think it's fair to say that George is a household name. He's an author, a writer, a journalist, and an environmental and political activist. Personally, I first heard about George uh, through his book, Feral, and then continued to read lots of what George was writing about uh, the state of nature in the United Kingdom and rewilding. I was really fortunate to get to spend a day with George filming in North Wales for a feature-length film project that we're working on. And when I was first putting the podcast together, George was uh, one of the first names that went on the list. But it wasn't Britain or rewilding or his time in the UK that I wanted to talk to him about. It was the subject of his book, Poisoned Arrows, which documents his time as a clandestine journalist in West Papua. I won't say any more about George or the story that he has to tell us, uh, but you will notice that George is a particularly talented storyteller and you might clock that I asked him one question at the start and said thank you at the end. So this is less of an interview and more me sitting still and laughing occasionally whilst George told me stories. Finally, I'll apologise for the sound on this one. You can hear a little bit of rain throughout, but we were sat in uh, George's kitchen in Oxford on a particularly rainy winter's day. Can you just begin by talking to me a little bit about where your interest in Indonesia, West Papua, started? Well, the only job I ever did was at the BBC, working for its Natural History Unit, making investigative environmental programmes. And I was always passionate from when I was a very small kid about the living world, and um, really angry and upset about what was being done to it, even from when I was very small. and. So the job I really wanted to do was exposing this stuff. And after a lot of banging down their door, I was um, allowed on a fairly short lead to, um, get, uh, to, to give it a go. And it worked out extremely well. I was um, um, taken on initially for three months and they liked what I was doing. And then they gave me a slightly longer contract and suddenly we started making programs which were having, in some cases, a worldwide impact, you know, leading the news worldwide. I mean, it was, it was really exciting. We were uncovering all sorts of shocking, outrageous stuff and making a difference. And as far as I was concerned, this was my life. This was what I was going to carry on doing forever because I immediately landed on my feet, immediately landed in the place I wanted to be doing I wanted to be doing the things I wanted to be doing. Perfect. And then, in 1987, let's go back a long way, 1987, Mrs Thatcher launched her coup against the BBC. 
it had made some programs which she was absolutely mortified by, like Secret Society, showing all this unauthorised government spending on secret projects, and Maggie's militant tendency, showing how some of her um, ministers had had far-right involvement in the past. Um, And she was just furious, and in her classic disregard of free speech, um, moved in, sacked the Director-General... Um, put an accountant in his place, basically disciplined the whole organisation. The day after the Director General was sacked, my boss came in and said, that's it, no more investigative programmes, I've had it from the top. And so I said, well, what am I going to do? He said, I don't know. And I said, well, I only want to make investigative programmes. And he said, well, you had to go make them somewhere else, weren't you? So um, I thought, uh, well, yes, I think I will. (laughs) And as it happened... The issue I'd been working on and was hoping to develop into a series was about West Papua. Well, not just West Papua, about um, what was happening across Indonesia and its occupied territories, including West Papua, which was um, this massive transmigration programme funded by the World Bank, uh, the UK, the US. And it was a project set up by this horrible dictator, Suharto, in Indonesia, who had already killed half a million people um, in his great purges of opposition people, um, who was this corrupt, lethal, appalling dictator. Um, And his madcap scheme was to move hundreds of thousands of people from the inner islands of Indonesia, Java and Bali, out to the peripheries of Indonesia and into its occupied territories, its illegally occupied territories like East Timor and West Papua. And he wanted to do so, I mean, ostensibly it was, we got to relieve population pressure in the inner islands, but the real reason was to secure the borders, to Indonesianize this very wide and far-flung archipelago with a huge variety of peoples and cultures, but to basically bring them all into the same culture, sort of central Indonesian culture, which was radically different from the cultures in many other places. It was an imperialist project, um, a a project of colonisation, and disgracefully it was massively funded by the World Bank and by rich nations like the UK. Um, who would basically fund anything that they saw as boosting an anti-communist government. As far as they were concerned, the whole region was just a series of counters in their great game with the Soviet Union, and they didn't care what happened to people as long as they could pursue their ultimate objective of keeping it within our sphere of influence rather than their sphere of influence, and Suharto was one of their assets. So I was... astonished by what I was discovering through my research, but also astonished by how little was known. There had been scarcely any investigation of this, scarcely any knowledge about it. It was all second, third, fourth hand. Um, And I quickly found out why, because under this almost totalitarian dictatorship that Suharto had, um, journalism was, shall we say, not exactly encouraged. Um, And uh, journalists were shot. I mean, a lot of journalists were killed. Um, And so um, it was clearly a very dangerous thing to um, get involved with, but 
God, I was 24, you know, I was a nutter, <laughs> 24-year-olds are, this is why war, wars get fought. Um, and, and that was kind of almost what attracted me to it. You know, I'd um, had quite a conventional and comfortable upbringing and I found it extremely boring. And uh, my life's work really was to get away from the boring stuff and do exciting stuff, but also to try to do something worthwhile while I was doing it. So I went to a publisher, a branch of Penguin, and um, I said, look, I'm completely mad. Um, I've got this great idea. Um, I intend to go out there and investigate it and to tell the story, not just of what I discover, but of the investigative uh, travel as well. So it would be like a travel book, which you know I thought would be a much more popular format than just here's what's happening, here's what's going wrong. Um, but um, it would be a travel book with a purpose, um, which was to expose this stuff. And um, and they immediately pounced on it. They thought, this guy is suitably mad, so we'll, we'll support him, which is, it seems to be the main criterion. <laughs> and so uh, they, they offered me an, an advance, quite a small amount of money, but then I found an agent who got it bumped bumped up enough to cover the, the costs of, of, of getting out there. Um, and the next thing I did was to contact this old friend of mine who was a photographer called Adrian Arbib. And I phoned him up and said, um, Adrian, listen, I'm leaving the BBC. Uh, I've um, got this contract to go to Indonesia and to write this book um, about this transmigration programme and it's completely mad and it's extremely dangerous. And he said, yes. I said, what do you mean, yes, I haven't asked you a question yet. He said, I said, I know you haven't, but the answer's yes. And I said, well, we're quite likely to get killed. He said, yeah, that's fine. The answer's yes. And and just like me, he was just bored. He was he was working for a business that he didn't enjoy it at all. It just didn't mean anything to him. And he just wanted to get out. And like me, he was a crazy young man. And um, it was, you know, time for something radical, <laughs> radical change. And um, and so then I, it struck me that I, I know nothing. You know, I'm just pig ignorant about the world. And luckily I was in a very good position at the BBC because um, we'd won a Sony award for one of our programmes. Um, you know, things had gone really well. I'd been offered jobs left, right and centre in other parts of the BBC, but I didn't want to do any of them. I was offered a job on the Today programme and it was just chilled me. I mean, it was a terrifying prospect, you know, why would I want to work for them? So, um, but I thought, right, let's be really strategic about this. And so I thought, right, I need to know about the world. I need to be able to contextualise what's going on in Indonesia, West Papua, East Timor. Um, I need some time to, to learn Indonesian, to do the preparation for the trip. And I need to fund myself while I'm doing that. So I applied for, the jo for a job with the World Service. BBC World Service, making news and current affairs, which was a pretty steep learning curve for me because all I really knew about was environmental issues. So, um, and I found it hard, but it was really helpful and interesting. And, and, and I very quickly learned as much as I could, just grabbing information about how the world works, how power works, how um economics work how the rest of it i mean i still don't really know but <laughs> i'm working on it i'm still working on it and um and so i i sort of quite ruthlessly used the opportunity and 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 did the job and i did it okay but 
fairly minimally, you know, just just enough to make sure I did a, a, a decent job. And then all the time I had was just sort of genning up and learning Indonesian as well as I could. Um, and so after six months of that, we, I felt ready to go. And so at this point, um, Adrian and me set off and we travelled to Jakarta. Now, the problem we faced was that most of the places we wanted to go, we weren't allowed to go to. And you know, before we got to Indonesia, I'd worked out that the place we really wanted to be was West Papua. Sure, we went to Sumatra as well. We, we you know, wanted to look at what was happening within Java and Bali, where people were coming from and all that. But it seemed pretty clear to me that West Papua was the epicentre of this. It's um, a territory that was illegally annexed um, in 1963. The, um, its occupation was justified with this farcical thing that the Indonesians call the Act of Free Choice, where 1,026 men were rounded up, some of their families were taken hostage, they were informed that if they voted the wrong way they would have their tongues torn out, and they were told whether they wanted to remain within Indonesia or become independent. Um, and um, surprise, surprise, they voted unanimously to remain within Indonesia. You know, we complain about our referendum, our remain leave referendum, but um, at least we weren't, weren't, didn't make, it, make our decision at gunpoint, as these men did. And with this ridiculous justification, the Indonesian government announced that West Papua, or Irian Jaya as they called it, was going to be part of Indonesia and was part of their integral territory and the rest of it. It's, it's got no legal right to do this. But as far as the US and the other powerful nations were concerned, they had every interest in keeping Indonesia sweet and no interest at all in the human rights of the West Papuan people, particularly because West Papua is incredibly rich in resources. Loads of gold, copper, oil, gas, timber, fertile soil, fish, you name it, it's got it. And this was just a magnet for multinational capital. You know, people just had dollar signs in their eyes. And so it was also an intense focus of the transmigration programme um, because basically these were going to be the labour force, these people were going to suppress the indigenous population, um, prevent them from rebelling and then overwhelm them as well. And um, um, one of the statements from an early governor, Indonesian governor of West Papua was, um, um, transmigration will help to breed a new race of people uh, um, uh, without curly hair, sowing the seeds of greater beauty. This was basically a eugenics program that they were pursuing. And of course, West Papuans are physically, culturally very different from people from Java and Bali. Um, they're dark-skinned, they're curly-haired, they have totally different cultures, belief systems and the rest of it. So this was you know, a straightforward colonisation project that was taking place here in an illegally occupied territory. So we wanted to be there, we wanted to see what was happening, we wanted to spend months there investigating what was going on. Slight problem, you absolutely weren't allowed into West Papua. It was... Um, um, completely forbidden. Occasionally, um, you could get permission to go as a missionary. There were a few um, missionaries in there, some of whom were pretty good, some of whom were appalling. Um, you could um, 
possibly under very tight circumstances go in to do a scientific mission occasional humanitarian workers were allowed in very tightly controlled but journalists forget it and we spent weeks and it was pretty awful because Jakarta is not a great place but just going every day to the central police station in Jakarta trying to get permission trying everyone we could not as journalists, but we said we were bird watchers and um, we just wanted to go and see the wonderful black cockatoos and you know, there's amazing birds there, cassowaries and mallee fowl and uh, uh, every kind of extraordinary bird you can imagine. You've got birds of paradise, of course, and all, all this sort of, So, you know, and, uh, luckily I know my natural history, so I was able to wax lyrical about all this, but it actually didn't do us any good at all. No, 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 no. And um, we, we just got stonewalled all the time and then one day after weeks of this i mean literally weeks of just sort of oh, we've got to find a way we've got to find a way i went uh, we'd been queuing outside this one office and i went off to get a, a, a glass of water walking down a corridor and i saw this door which said head of immigration police on the on on on, on the door and it was slightly ajar so i knocked on the door no answer and I pushed open the door a bit and the office was empty and I was just about to walk away when I thought, wait a minute. <laughs> On the desk was this pad of headed notepaper and a stamp. So I looked around and there was no one there. So the pad of headed notepaper and the stamp disappeared and um, I went down the corridor and said to Adrian, we're sorted, let's go. And he said, what, what you got for me? Just just let's get out, out of here. And so we just got out as quick as we could um, with the help of some Indonesian friends. His Indonesian was obviously much better than ours. We wrote this letter from the head of immigration police saying, these are my trusted friends. Um, they have permission to go wherever they want to go in West Papua in order to study the wildlife and watch the birds. And if you interfere with them, you'll have me to answer to and signed it with some a maniacal signature <laughs> and um, so um, so we were off we, we, we were able to um, um, show this at the airport as our as our permission to travel um, they accepted it and we got on this juddery old Hercules this, this C-130 transport plane and uh, a flight which took hours and hours crossing the whole of Indonesia you know and you see all these extraordinary islands laid out below you and then as we approached West Papua, um, uh, what you could see was dense cloud. Um, you know, the cloud was, it, 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 there wasn't any cloud over the sea, but as soon as you get to the landmass, you see this dense cloud with this, this thick rainforest and deltas and things underneath it. And I have to say, my immediate sense was dread. I was just like, what are we throwing ourselves into? You know, there's sort of those, those lowering clouds which were hugging the land seemed symbolic of of the sort of this very dangerous and 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 claustrophobic situation that we were throwing ourselves into and we landed on the island of biak which is just to the north of the main um, I, um part of west papua which is the western half of the island of new guinea and we were particularly keen to go to biak anyway it happened that 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 was the way in at the time, that was where the airport was. But we wanted to start in Biak as it happened because as part of my preparations um, to get out there, I'd been to visit 
the West Papuan leader in exile as he was then in, in, in Holland called Victor Cassiepo. And he had given me a letter of introduction to a rebel leader in, in West Papua. So I um, um, thought, uh, right, um, how am I going to do this? And we, um, I'd sealed the letter inside the front cover of, of a book. I'd, um, I'd folded it over and sealed it completely, glued it down and passed the book around to loads of friends and said, do you notice anything odd about this book? And no one noticed anything. I'd sort of done a very good forger's job, really, covering it up. And, um, and, and the address he'd given me was a government office. And he said he works in this government office. So it's like, oh, jeez, how, how am I going to find him there? And um, so, so I come to this office. Um, and, uh, I went by myself because I thought it'd be easier with just one person. And um, and I went to reception and um, and said, "Oh, hello! I'm um, travelling here. We're going bird watching, and um, I want to hire a car." And she said, "Well, you'll have to go to a car hire place." Yes, yes, but I need your help because um, I'm just. I, I'm very, I'm new here, I don't quite understand the system, so, you know, you're the government, so you help people like me, yes? And she was just like, who the hell is this person? I said, I said is there someone I can talk to? And she said, said oh, yeah, they're all in the meeting. I said, that's, that's where I need to be, thank you very much. Where's the meeting? And she said, well, it's in there, but you can't. And I just went through the meeting. So I, 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 I walk into this meeting, and there's like 20 people sitting around this table, um, and they and I just throw the door open and they're all staring at me. I said, oh, Jesus, what am I going to do now? So it's like, hi, hi, everyone. My name's George. How are you doing? Um, I'm a birdwatcher, a tourist, um, um, and I really need your help. I really need your help. So um, first of all, can, can, can I just say hello? Um, and so I went around the table, shaking their hands and saying, I'm George, and basically getting them to, you could see them. And, and, and the man at the head of the table said, look, look, sir, we, I'm sorry, but we're having a, a meeting here. I, I know, I know. I'm so glad. I'm so grateful to you that you've let me come in and talk to you because I know how important your meeting is. So, you know, I was thinking, Jesus, how am I coming across here? You know? <laughs> completely crazy so I went round one by one and they all told me their names I got to the head of the table where the guy chairing it was and um and I told told him my name and he was like for god's sake and, and, and but he said he said his name and he was a guy turned out he was head of the whole department so I was like right so but I carried on around the table and then um and then I I said so what I'm looking for is a car and stuff and so this this guy leading the meeting the guy the guy I needed to meet um said look there is a car hire place down the road all right you, you, I don't know if they've got any cars because they probably haven't but this is the only place to go so I went up to him and said um said thank you thank you this is this is so brilliant uh, i'm so grateful to you let me write down my address so, so we can correspond and he was like for god's sake so so i wrote down i'm a friend of victor cassiopo's meet me in the golden horse cafe this uh, this evening handed it to him and he takes this thing and his eyes just go <laughs> straight out on the stalks and he said right well thank you very much goodbye and so um so that evening i go to the golden horse cafe and it it's just pure luck, this. It turned out the cafe itself was run by rebels. Um, and so uh, that, that was just pure serendipity. Um, 
and and I and I step in and they immediately shut the door and lock it and said come this way and I was like oh shit you know I thought I I'd, I'd interpreted it completely the other way around I thought Jesus these are they're on to me these are Indonesian security and they take me into the back room and I thought right okay this is curtains this is where it all ends and I thought Jesus Christ you know at least Adrian knows where I am but you know there's what can he do anyway you know if he comes forward he'd just get killed as well so I was, I was shitting bricks go into the back room and there's there's my contact there's a bloke who Victor put me on to and I'm like really confused and 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 he said how did you know this was the place to meet and I said uh, I didn't and he said who are you <laughs> and so so I was like uh, right, okay, so I, I get my pen knife out and immediately they were all sort of like, oh, so, whoa, 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 whoa. and I just slit open the cover of the book and pull the letter out and you see them just sort of looking at me and oh, what the hell is this? And I give him the letter and he reads this letter and he says, right, okay, you're good. <laughs> so I was like, yes, 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 he thinks I'm good, he's a rebel leader and he thinks I'm good at this stuff. This is this is a great start. So, so um, so, um, so, so then we have a few beers and we get hatching and, you know, and a few more beers and, and he says, right, I'm going to fix you up. You go to Jayapura, which is the, um, what's the main town in, in West Papua, it's still a tiny town at the time. Um, and I'll fix you up. Someone will come and meet you. Go to this hotel, stay in this hotel and someone will come and meet you. So, um, I, um, we we then crossed the water, went uh, onto the main island, and um, stayed in this hotel in Jayapura. And um, within a couple of days, um, this local rebel commander um, sought us out and um, said, "All right, I'm gonna. What I'm gonna do is um, next time we're doing an ex- uh, uh, next time we're doing an expedition, I'll, I'll take you. We're we'll in a boat. We're gonna go." Um, round the coast up the river and we're going to we're going to do an action we're going to you know do um, they were doing all sorts of things but generally very poorly armed and most of them kept being killed but you know they were just trying to fight for independence so we thought great this is a fantastic start you know we're, we're right in there from the very beginning um, but we waited and waited and they never turned up um, and eventually after a week this guy came back and said uh, okay, okay, it's nearly there, it's nearly there, just hold on. And we waited and we waited. And we got more and more bored. So, you know, we went, spent ages swimming, we spent ages walking around. And then one day, um, I decided to get out of town a bit because it's a horrible place. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, being trapped there was really unpleasant. And so I took this um, minibus, um, like sort of 10, 15 miles down the road, um, to go for a walk in the forest. And, um, um, and you know, we'd been for little walks close by, but, you know, I wanted to get a bit further out. And um, so I set off, um, heading down through the forest, um, took my shirt off. It was very hot and sweaty. Um, and within about 10 minutes of setting off on this walk, I'd bump into this blackened stump in an area which had been burnt a bit and the trees were coming back. This was rotten, burnt stump. And within a couple more paces, I was completely surrounded by hornets, huge black ones with <laughs> terrifying jungle hornets. And we'd 
read in our survival handbook, which at the time all young men like me read, um, that, th- that three black jungle hornets could kill a man. Um, now, uh, you know, it's probably bollocks, but it was frightening. <laughs> and and I was, they were all over me, these things. And I knew full well, you just stand completely still and you let them fly off. And I had quite long hair at the time, and I could feel some of them trapped in my hair, buzzing away, and it was just sort of this... I was trying to hold on to it, this sort of sense of panic rising, you know, just sort of, oh, no, 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 just keep a lid in it, keep a lid. But I was also wearing shorts, and there was this one... was just walking, buzzing up the inside of my leg, and it got up into my shorts, and it was like... Ooh. I was just holding on for dear life I'm not going to panic I'm not going to panic and suddenly it was like no and I started bashing myself with my shirt and and running and and thwacking at these hornets and of course I got stung um, in in this case eight times and it was extremely painful you know there's a massive it's like sort of getting an iron nail hammered into you so that's sort of pain and um and and immediately these sort of swelled up into great big lumps and it was like it felt pretty bad you know and they said oh jesus and i thought right i'm gonna die you know i've been stung by eight of these hornets and i went running through the forest and i come to this house on stilts um uh, which probably was the the guy who'd been clearing some, some, some of the forest and i get to the bottom of the ladder and I shout up, I said, help, help, I've been um, stung by, by in, in, I've been bitten by insects, because I didn't know the word for stung and I didn't know the word for hornets, but I've been bitten by insects, uh, eight of them have bitten me, and now I'm going to die. No, I said, there's sort of total panic, and probably wasn't making any sense, but, um, and, and no one came down, no one came down, so, oh, so I then swarmed up the ladder, and, um, and there was a very low doorway, in, into this sort of beautiful little house made of wood and rattan and stuff. And um, I stepped forward through the doorway, hit my head on, on the jam of the door, on the lintel of the door, and I fall flat on top of this woman in, in the house who screams. And, 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 and I stood up, no, 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 it's all right, it's all right, I'm friendly, I'm Georgian. And, and, and I looked around and there were these people pressed into the corners of, of, of this room looking absolutely terrified. And I said, it's all right. It's all right. Um, uh, my name is George. I've just been bitten by eight insects. Now I'm going to die and I need your help. And these people go, ooh, ooh. <laughs> you can see the absolute terror. I thought, thought, I'm not getting through. You've got to understand, eight insects attacked me. They were flying around my head and now they've bitten me. And what I hadn't realised was that in my panic, instead of saying saranga, which is insects, I was saying samanka, which is watermelons. <laughs> which um, slightly changed the context. Um, and their apprehension of what, what, what was going on. So, um, so I said, look, 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 there's a man sitting there. And I sat down and said, look, you've got to understand me. I've been attacked by watermelons. Eight of them bit me. And now I'm going to die. You have to help me. And this bloke was going, (laughs) total total terror. And suddenly he goes, ah, Saranga. And I say, yes, Saranga. And and it was at that moment, 
I realised what I'd been saying, and it was like, oh no, oh god. And he said, ah, ah, he says, I've got just the thing. Here we go. And he said, lie down, lie down, you'll be all right. I've got just the thing. So I thought, ah, oh, thank God, you know, he's, he's, he'll have some jungle remedy. You know, people have to live with these hornets, so that they'll they'll have developed ways of 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 dealing with with these stings, and it'll be fine. So. So I lay down and I was trying to calm myself down and I was in a real state. And um, and, and this guy um, um, comes back with something. I don't see it because I'm face down. And he starts rubbing it into my back and it feels great. You know, it's like a warming sensation, you know. And I thought, oh God, I can feel myself getting better. It must be some really powerful medicine he's got that is fantastic. And then I turn and look and he's got this jar of Vicks Vapor Rub in his hand. <laughs> And I think, no, no, that's not going to heal me. And so I just leap up and say, no, 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 I'm going to die. And I run out of the room, completely forgetting it's 10 foot off the ground. <laughs> and just go, crash into the shrubbery. And then run. I just land, you know, I, I just pick myself up and just run as fast as I can. This is total panic, I'm a blind panic. And I look back and there's this guy holding this, jar of Vicks vapor rub in one hand my shirt in the other shaking, shaking his head with his eyes like saucers <laughs> these foreigners are crazy so um so I run and run and run and I get back to the road and I flag down this minibus and get on it and you know I've only got my shorts on it I haven't even got a shirt on and and these people are sort of edging away from me in the, in the minibus saying like, what the hell is this and I start to say to this woman who's like looking really scared. I said, "It's all right. It's all right. I've, I've just, I've been, I've been bitten by insects. I got it right this time. There's nothing to worry about." And at exactly that point, I started convulsing, and I started having these full-on convulsions, and I was like, oh, I couldn't speak. I was, I, I, and my whole body was like racked by these shuddering movements uh, as the toxins were were kicking in, and. So it's like, so everyone was like, you know, another lot of people thinking I was completely insane. And um, I got to Jayapura, you know, it was just luckily nearby, and um, and, and got out and uh, and I just collapsed and, and I managed to pull myself back to the hotel. I would stand up for a few paces, uh, really shuddering and shaking and 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 pulled myself back up but I fell over and and eventually got back into the hotel and Adrian was there luckily thank goodness and he just took one look at me and said what the hell's happened to you and I was like oh. and I, <laughs> I saw hey there it's Michelle Norris I'm host of a podcast called your mama's kitchen when I travel I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home and one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain and Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Almost a watermelon, you know, but I managed, managed to just make myself understood that I'd been stung all over, and he saw these huge welts all over my body. So he sort of 
gave me loads of antihistamine and he said look I don't know what else we can do but I'll find a doctor and at that point I just crashed out and for 16 hours I was unconscious uh, but then I came round at the end of it and I, I felt fine it was alright anyway the rebels never did connect with us and so it just you know and I can't blame them you know more important things to do but it was just it's an endless frustration so eventually we, we gave up and we flew to Wamana in the central highlands of, of West Papua um, where a, a lot of bad stuff was going on um, which we wanted to investigate but we also realised that the epicentre of uh, what was happening was down in um, the south of the country around the town of Morauki in the, in the, the marshlands the swamplands around there where huge numbers of transmigrants had been brought in. And we realised the only way we could get there was to walk, because it was surrounded by soldiers. You couldn't fly in. There weren't any roads. Um, you, um, there was no way of getting a boat round either. There was just, you know, there was simply no motorised transport. Um, the only motorised transport you could take was, 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 was an aeroplane, and we'd be immediately apprehended at the airport. And we reckoned that this letter which was so far been very useful um wouldn't get us through and boy were we right because at um, a later point in a different place we got caught with the letter by soldiers and they didn't believe it and they held us for three days while they um uh, tried to i mean you know i'd shown them the letter to say we're okay and they just shook their heads and said no no that's bollocks and they tried to make contact with jakarta for three days and their radio was down I couldn't do it my hair was coming out in clumps you know, I was terrified I thought they're just going to shoot us as soon as they find that their suspicions are confirmed and this letter isn't real they're just going to shoot us that's what they do um, but they never made contact and so eventually they just let us go <laughs> with the letter <laughs> which we continued to use but in this case we realised that it was, it was unlikely to get us through so basically we had to walk to Meraki, which was weeks um, but and so Wamina was the only place because it wasn't you know it, there was bad stuff going on there but it wasn't nearly as bad as the south we thought we would get, could get through there and we did and there wasn't any checks at Wamina airport we managed to get through and um, <clears throat> so we immediately set off we hired a couple of guides and immediately set off across the western highlands to cut down to the south of the country and this was at the time a com extraordinarily wild and remote place there was no roads there was no infrastructure of any kind which made it astonishing remarkable it was just um the houses people had built entirely from the materials that surrounded them their beautiful gardens they kept their pigs the men wore penis gourds women wore grass skirts um they um um all the men lived in one house, all the women in another. And so um, we just moved from one community to, to, to the next, walking as far as we could every day through this land, which was, it was magical. It was quite extraordinary. There was cloud forest, there was rain forest, um, there was montane forest, there were montane pastures, I mean, natural um, pastures maintained by wallabies and other um, grazing animals. Um, this extraordinary series of habitats of ecosystems full of amazing wildlife tree kangaroos and um, 
marsupials of all kinds, um, uh, uh, in- incredible range of birds, reptiles, land crabs, which horrified one of our guides was terrified of land crabs, and so it caused a lot of amusement. But um, but we moved from from village to village, um, and gradually got higher and higher up these incredible mountains, which go to about sixteen thousand feet. I don't know what that is in meters. Um, we went up to about fourteen to cross the the pass that we were crossing was about fourteen thousand, and and we just went up through one amazing habitat after another. There was one point where we had to get down a mountainside, and it was completely covered by these horizontal bushes. They 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 just stuck straight out of the mountainside, and they were totally springy. And we looked down and thought, "There's no way." we can get down that because it's just it was like they were impenetrable each bush is impenetrable we can't cut through and 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 we said to the guys how are we going to do this and the guys said follow me and he just leapt off the top of the mountain hit the first one of these and it was like a trampoline he just went halfway back up into the air and then down onto the next one and just bounced all the way down a thousand feet to the bottom to, to the bottom of the valley so we thought way and off we went and and it, it was amazing it, it felt completely safe you just like boing 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 all the way down and then um and then on the day we were to cross the pass we um climbed up this um incredibly rugged mountain it's karstic scenery um so you've got these um these limestone very sharp limestone rocks um all weathered into extraordinary shapes um, and um, Adrian's boots were literally ripped to pieces. He he ended up walking in his socks because um, he 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 lost. Um, I mean, it, it, the first one bit of a boot, and then the next, and then the next, until there was no boot left at all. And um, he um, um, and 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 his feet were then pretty ripped to pieces as well. And we got up at the end of that particular day to this place where the two Papuan guys we were with saying we're going to stay here for the night and we looked around and said where and said here and they pointed and it was this cave entrance because we were then by then far from any village and we stepped into this cave and it was like passing through a threshold into a magical kingdom it was this I mean it wasn't a deep cave but it was perfectly positioned close to the summit of this mountain with this astonishing view just the the mountains stepping away, getting the colours fading as as they went um, towards these very distant plains and and the sea, I must have been 80, 80, 90 miles away, and you could see the whole thing stepping away from you, and it was like being on the threshold between life and death, and the whole cave was several feet deep in feathers and fur from the animals and the birds that, they, that people had shot with their arrows and had plucked and skinned there on, on the way. And and we had lived entirely up to this point on sweet potatoes, which we bought in the villages along the way. But um, in, in the cave, we had our first meat of the trip because um, there was this little marsupial rat running around and, and, and someone... Um, 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 takes his stick and goes whack, and he says, "Maka, eat," and I'm like, okay, fine. 
and uh, we, we we cooked it up and I was just about to tuck in. He said, no, 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 no. Kami Bodoa, let us pray. <laughs> we had to say grace before we ate the rat. But we, so we had this rat and um, and, um, and and we were staring across this landscape and Adrian says, you know, I don't care if I live or die. I said, Adrian, you can't say that. You, you can't say that. We've got to live. You know, we're going to get through this. It's going to be fine. And he said, no, no, I actually don't care if I live or die. This is fine. It's fine. I don't care. And I said, no, no, it's, it's just unacceptable even to say that. He said, well, do you? Do you? I said, no, but, but that's an entirely different matter. <laughs> um, you know, we, we just, yeah, we're just we going to survive this. He said, no, 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 no we're going to survive it because we don't care. And I thought, well, yeah, that's it. That's actually right. That's actually right. You know, it's because we're too stupid to care that we're going to get through this. And, and it kind of, you know, that was kind of how it was. You know, it's like it wasn't even courage. It was just... Lack of imagination. <laughs> so, um, so we then carry on. We cross the mountains, and we the other side of the mountains is the densest forest I've ever been in. It was almost impassable. It was extremely thick. We had to hack our way through every step, um, just covered in vines and creepers and the rest of it. And and it was, um, I mean, it was amazing, but it was scary as well. Um, because it turned out that after just one day of walking, the guides were completely lost. And this entire area had been vacated, a very large area, um, many years before because it was malarial. Um, but there were also all these rumours. Uh, every, everywhere you went, you were told that the next community were cannibals. And the next community... They're, they're probably... Uh, you know, There'd only ever been ritual cannibalism of people who'd already died as part of the sort of ancestor worship but um but the stories were they're going to kill you and eat you and 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 so it, you know what's interesting about this is it wasn't just western people imagining there were cannibals it was actually Papuan people imagining there were cannibals even though they were non-existent there weren't any you know and, and but it was always the story oh you can't can't go there there's cannibals and and you know the guides were very afraid of this they were they genuinely scared by this and 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 we kept saying no it's just not true but i said well are you pat wouldn't you know we know and of course it wasn't true there weren't there weren't any cannibals but it was um all added to this sense of of stepping into a place where no one really wanted to go and we um so we we walked and we walked and we just didn't seem to be able to find our way out of this Every time we thought we'd found a way out, we would hit a new mountain wall. And we, it was the most exhausting walking you can imagine because these mountains were, they were like cliffs. You had to go up each one hand over hand, pulling yourself up with the trees because um, they, they, they were so steep and there were so few rocky footholds. You just had to use the vegetation to get your way up. And you get to the top and... You can't see any way forward. You know the, the paths had all gone. There weren't any paths, and um, and oh yes, um, my southern hemisphere compass had been dissolved by my insect repellent, which didn't, <laughs> didn't help at all. It, we had this. Um, it was not DEET. It was one of those other ones which um, was strongly recommended, and it leaked in my bag, and it just completely dissolved the compass. All the plastic just turned to mush. And so it was like, no more compass. So that, that, that was, uh, you know, added to the problem that we, we were in. So, um, um, 
so so we kept getting to the top of the mountain where you know the guides would confidently say yeah yeah it's, it's, it's this way it's this way we get to the top of the mountain and you look at the guide and they say Satu Gunung Lagi, one more mountain. <laughs> and, and after a while, this became our catchphrase, you know. So we, as we were approaching the top of the mountain, Adrian and I would turn to each other and say, Satu Gunung Lagi. <laughs> and uh, sure as hell it was Satu Gunung Lagi. And we were completely lost. We got totally lost and, uh, and began genuinely to think we weren't going to get out of there. I mean, apart from anything else, we started getting very hungry. We ran out of food. I started fantasizing about food. I would dream of it. I, I kept dreaming of apricot fruitcake for some reason. I'd only ever once had an apricot fruitcake, but I really liked it. And I kept dreaming of apricot fruitcake. And, and I, I, it was, became an obsession. I mean, it's only when you've been really hungry, like haven't eaten for three days, that you really know what hunger is. And you can't think about anything else. It's just all-consuming, so to speak. Um, it, 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 was, it just occupies the whole of your mind. And and so we were like casting around for anything to eat. And at night, a lot of insects would come in. So we ate the insects, um, in, including um, these giant phasmids, these enormous stick insects, uh, spiny stick insects, um, some of which were a foot long. So there was quite a lot to eat on them, but they, they were pretty disgusting because the, um, they'd been eating a lot of... Um, uh, very strong tasting plants and so while they didn't taste it very much you got this sort of really sort of oh, spicy and not very nice powerful um, taste from them but uh, but but whenever you, you you caught an insect to eat the, the guy just stopped me no no stop 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 Tommy Bedoa <laughs> had to pray had to say grace before you ate anything so we'd eat the um, eat the first bids and um, they, they caught another rat so we ate that eventually they shot a marley fowl which was a big catch. No, that was great. And that kept us going for a couple of days. Um, and then later a couple of um, small pythons. So we, we ate those as well. And But this was it for a couple of weeks. Um, that was the only food, um, just what we could find. At one point they found a, pan, a couple of pandanus palms and so we were, we were able to eat the fruits from those, which were, ah, oh, disgusting, oily fruit. But again, you know, nutritious and kept, kept us going and you know these guys were amazing you know they were really fantastic they were well out of their own area it was a, a completely different ecosystem to the ones that they were used to but they they still stuck with it they were they were pretty impressive and um and you know they were in despair as well because they were convinced they lost and there were the land crabs which <laughs> absolutely horrified by well, well oh, it, was, it was really really frightened by the land crabs so and at last, we found our way down to a a river. This was the other weird thing, because it was this limestone scenery. You know, the rivers would start and then disappear, and you couldn't follow them, and they'd just, there'd be a swallow hole, and there's no bloody river, you know. And so so we, you, you, you couldn't, you know, in the dry valleys, you, you couldn't use your normal navigational sense of just sort of, we'd just follow a river down to the swamps, which is where we're going. And at last, we found a river which seemed to be heading in in the right direction. Um, so we thought we'd follow it, but it was a it was a very fast and ferocious mountain river, and there was no way of following it on the side that we were on, because there was sh- sheer walls coming coming down to the river, and so we had to cross it. Um, and um, we uh, so the idea was that. Um, um, 
Adrian would go across with a rattan with a, because he was the strongest swimmer with, with a small rattan which we would tie to a longer one. These rattan vines are you know, sometimes 100 feet or more long um, and incredibly strong. And, and so then you tie that to a stronger one and then haul that over and, um, and, and make a, a, a crossing that way. And so, so we did that. Um, um, but then, um, um, uh, and, and we succeeded the first time we had to cross it. But the second time we had to cross it, there wasn't any rattan. So we, we had to swim. And, um, and I, I'm not as strong as swimmer. He got over and I got swept away. And he just caught me um, before I went over this series of falls. He grabbed my hand and uh, saved my life um, and pulled me out. But it was, uh, it was a very close run thing. So we managed to weave our way down this river. Um, and eventually it, um, the, the mountains began to soften and we got into the foothills and then we got down to the swamps. And there we found another problem because it was a rainy season. So, you know, every night we've been rained on in, <clears throat> in the forest, but you could kind of put up with that. It's warm enough. You know, it's, it was pretty uncomfortable. Um, we got um, very, very wet and quite cold, but it, it wasn't life-threatening. But the swamps were completely flooded. So the, um, um, the passages which you might otherwise be able to walk, we often had to swim. Um, we had to cross a lot of flooded depressions and all the um, creatures of the forest had moved up into the trees. Um, so there was this extraordinary, it was like, it was like a horror film, um, that there were these huge communal spider webs um, and these amazing orb weaving spiders as well. I mean, the spider, you know, if you're interested in spiders, it was pretty amazing, but we were also slightly afraid of spiders too, to, to, to my um, disgrace, because you know I'm meant to be a biologist. But um, I, I, I did have I, less now, but I had a sort of residual fear of spiders. And you'd walk through these webs and get completely covered, totally covered in these very thick, strong spider webs. And then you would catch every insect you came across as you walked through because there were all these masses of insects, all these mantids and butterflies and beetles and everything flying out of the vegetation as you went past. And they would all get trapped in the spider webs. And so you would just be a throbbing, pulsating, buzzing, um, a flapping mass of, of insects as you went through. And of course, all the spiders crawling all over you as well, some of which were pretty big. And at one point, I, we'd been wading through this depression and Adrian had got out the other side and I was just pulling myself out and he looks down and said, there's a spider on your head. I said, so fucking what? There's spiders everywhere. He said, I think you might be interested in this one. So I go flip like this. And I felt this thing and it landed with a thud and immediately reared up on its hind legs, put it on for, and it was like, ah, ah, it was the size of a rat. It was a huntsman spider. You see, you remember that viral image of, of one in Australia pulling a rat up a fridge? It, it was one of those. And it was like, yes, 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 okay, I see what you mean. <laughs> That's a spider. <laughs> so, um, so and, and eventually, you know, we, we came down to a, an amazing Azmat village where we swapped guides. We uh, sent the, um, let, let the, these, 
two poor long-suffering men go home and 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 found some new guides and they had these incredible asthmat houses all on stilts um a lot of it had been trashed by the indonesian government but um you know there was still some of the extraordinary culture they had with the wood carvings and the amazing ritual life um and then we um hired a canoe a, a long dugout canoe to go down this river down towards Merauke. And it was extraordinary this river just you know to begin with it was pretty fast still and um, a little bit rocky on the dugout canoe <laughs> you know, imagine a bit a little bit scary because if you capsize it it's very hard to get it back up again and these are incredibly heavy things so you really don't want to capsize and by this time we were exhausted we were thin as a rake i mean i was you could see all the bones sticking out um we also had these um um, big sores which were in danger of turning into tropical ulcers where, um, oh, because we had leech bites all over us. These leeches throughout the forest would hang down from the trees and then drop onto your head and then work their way down. They would either um, um, suck blood from your head or they'd work their way down the body or they would crawl in through the lace holes of your boots. And they, they, it's amazing. They can make themselves so thin. And so when it came to the end of the day, you'd take your boots off and you'd tip them upside down and this blood would just pour out from all the mashed up leeches which had sucked your blood. And then, because they have this anticoagulant and so it's just like covered. So we had these infected leech bites which wouldn't heal. You know, we took, brought along a medical kit, but we, any iodine, whatever, potassium permanganate, whatever we put on them, it had no impact at all. It wouldn't heal at all. And um, and so we were kind of in, in despair. But, um, um, but, you know, at least we could just sit in this dugout and go down the river, which we did for several days. It was amazing. Saltwater crocodiles, astonishing water birds, um, other people in their canoes heading off with... They'd keep their fires with them because they didn't have matches or anything. So they'd always um, take the fire with them. So you'd have these canoes like like sort of smoking dragons, you know, sort of putting out this smoke following them down the river. It was really amazing with these just really impressive, fantastic people with their sort of leaf-shaped um, paddles all, all going down, um, trading stuff and going to meet people and things. And so gradually more and more people on the river but again, nothing mechanised, no sign of any fossil fuel-powered technology of any kind at all. Um, and eventually, we get down to this um, small town um, where, um, um, well, a little village really, where there are a couple of um, Dutch missionaries um, who were pretty good. I mean, we met some very dangerous Protestant missionaries in the Highlands who were... Um, basically said these people are with the devil and we've got to strip all their culture away and make them into good Christians and stuff. But these guys were very different. They were they were Catholics, they were of the sort of liberationist tendency and they basically said, uh, one of them told us, you know, to be honest, I don't really care what happens to them after they're dead. It's keeping them alive that counts for me. And they um, were, had massive risks. You know, one of them... Um, had very nearly been killed by Indonesian soldiers for defending the people. They're constantly um, up against it. And um, 
and they took one look at us and said, well, you guys need, need some help and um, took us in. They were brilliant. And they uh, told us that those sores were caused by vitamin, D de vitamin B deficiency, that um, because we were so, mal so malnourished, we didn't have enough vitamin B to heal our, our wounds. And so they were in serious danger. They were very close to getting tropical ulcers, which were very dangerous. But as soon as we... Um, started having um, a decent diet and you know they, they had good food there um, um, we began to heal uh, heal up and so and they was, was kind, of, kind of saying well we shouldn't be telling you this but where you need to go is here here and stuff so um, they set us off on, on the next leg and we got down to this horrendous transmigration site and what was very interesting there was you know it wasn't just that the indigenous people had been thrown off their land and were dispossessed and hanging around at the margins of what was once their territory after terrible things had been done to them but the trans migrants were having an appalling time as well they'd been promised this land of milk and honey they'd been promised hospitals and schools and good roads and stuff and none of that had happened none of the infrastructure had been provided they'd just been dumped in these corrugated huts in what they thought was hell. You know, for them, this was just a totally alien land. You know, they were 2,000 miles from where they'd been brought up in a place as different as um, West Africa is for Europeans. You know, this was, this was total, a totally different place for them. And, and there was horrendous malaria. There were... Um, um, their land was flooded most of the time the the amount of mice had to be seen to be believed i mean we slept in a trans migrant's house uh, on the first night and i woke up in the night with this really weird sort of plucking sensation on the on, on my toes I thought, what the hell is this and i looked and it was these mice chewing my toenails they were just completely crowded around my toes, just chewing my toenails. I was like, oh, gee, I'm not afraid of mice or anything, but it's like, what the hell is this? And in the morning, I said, the mice chew my toes. Oh, yeah, we get that every night. They just come in and chew your toenails. That's what they do. You don't have to cut your toenails here. <laughs> and it was, it was literally, I mean, it was just plague proportions. It was like, it was like another kind of horror film, you know, there were mice everywhere. And, um, and they were totally miserable these trans migrants had, you know, had a, and they were being attacked by local people because they'd taken the land from the local people and so they're in the middle of this conflict and they just didn't want to be there and they said and, and some of them told us that they had been told they were being taken to Sumatra you know, quite in the, uh, the complete opposite direction and it wasn't until they were put in the plane that they, they well no in fact it wasn't until the plane landed that they realised they were in somewhere completely different and a lot of them had no idea where they were when, when they got off. They never heard of West Papua, some of these people. So they were victims uh, as, as well as the local people. And we spent um, um, quite a lot of time gathering information there. Then we managed to get out of the boat um, and get on to the next leg where we went up to the um, southeast corner i mean f f further round um to um southeastern um papua up hard up against the papua new guinea border um where we saw the first palm oil plantations being put in so right in front of our eyes you know this was the very beginning of the palm oil revolution in that 
a part of the world which has had devastating effects since and huge amounts of land in that very area that we are in have since been stolen from people to plant palm oil and we could just see where this was going at the time you know we could see this is um this is going to be really really bad and we met um lots more dispossessed people we heard some horrendous stories of what had happened to them um there was internecine conflict as well between communities that started up um, because so much pressure was being put on them and there were soldiers everywhere that was the point at which we got caught with the letter and um and and thought we were going to um end it there um but eventually we managed to get out by hook and by crook and um brought back you know this extraordinary story um the uh, story which hadn't been told before um and desperately needed to be told so I wrote it up in my book Poisoned Arrows um I'd taken a tape recorder as well so I made a radio program about it too um got together with Survival International um to launch a bit of a campaign and I kind of naively believed that all you needed to do was to put the information in front of people and make sure that enough people were aware of it and things would change and you know the publicity for the book was good i was on the today program you know they didn't understand any of it but you know i managed to more or less get the ideas across and you know there was quite a lot of interviews and things and and i thought these things are going to change but of course you know i hadn't really understood power and i hadn't really understood that it's not about arguments you know you can have all the best arguments in the world but if power doesn't want something to change it's not going to change and you have to change the politics you have to change the power relations so it it was intensely frustrating for me you know coming back and with this extraordinary story and you know being able for the first time properly with a proper eyewitness account of everything that was happening in West Papua um because we went to a few other parts of West Papua as well um by various means and we really told a pretty comprehensive story but to find it had no diplomatic traction at all um and that it wasn't going to change the situation and still hasn't changed the situation west papua stays under illegal occupation to this day despite the concerted efforts of its people i mean i've never known such astonishing dedication amongst independence campaigners you know there's a very similar situation to tibet for example and the papuans just haven't given up they they've stuck with it just recently they did something quite amazing they managed to gather 1.8 million signatures 70% of the papuan population um requesting self determination um a, a, a petition to the un and they did so in incredibly dangerous circumstances because people who who distributed the petition and people who signed it they got beaten up by soldiers um you know people are getting killed all the time out there tortured horrendously in prisons too and this incredible courage and they they came back with 1.8 million validated signatures or thumbprints from people who are illiterate because of very high levels of illiteracy still there and um and you know I've seen the book which has got the photos of all these signatures this massive book you can hardly hardly lift it and they can't even get the UN to accept the 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 petition because it's still the case that 
the interests of the rich nations are totally in keeping in with Indonesia and not at all in supporting the West Papuans or in supporting international law. Um, and the, uh, the patience of these people is just quite remarkable because they, they haven't given up despite all this. And, and for the most part, it's, it's totally peaceful campaigning, though of course there are some, still some rebels as well, though they just tend all to get killed. Um, and and yet they're still at it and still at it and still pushing and you know, I'm still trying to support those efforts through journalism and by other means. Um, the um, um, leader of the um, Free West Papuan movement um, lives here in Oxford and um, so I stay in touch with him and, and with his campaign but it's just an incredibly difficult struggle. Um, and made all the worse by the multinational companies who moved in, including BP, exploiting the oil, the gas, the um, the gold, the copper, the other um, resources. Um, and this is effectively stolen property, because when you're in an illegally occupied nation um, and you don't have the permission of its people to operate there, then under international law, you are stealing the resources from that nation. Thanks for listening. You can find more info about George in the show notes at theadventurepodcast.co.uk. And whilst George is famous for his book, Feral, I would suggest that you buy his book, Poisoned Arrows, to hear more about West Papua. And finally, George has actually agreed to record another one of these already and uh, was particularly keen to talk about the time he was reported to have been killed in Brazil. So keep your eyes peeled for that. This podcast is produced in association with Sidetrack magazine and you can find more amazing stories of adventure at sidetrack.com. The podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft and produced by Pip Saunders and Tom Cargriffin. Please do get in touch if you have a guest suggestion or would just like to say hello at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk.